Our scripture reading today is Joshua chapter 7, which is found on page 182 of your pew Bibles. Let's pray. Lord, please open our hearts and our minds, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for there are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this? people over the Jordan at all, to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us. Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by the clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come, come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, the clans of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden under, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. 
And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan and the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys, and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of the Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remain to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Yet again, one of those stories we run across I don't remember hearing as a child in Sunday school. Or if so, some of the details being left out. And so one of those stories that uh, challenge us, um, challenge us in a couple of ways I'm going to look at, but I want to kind of point out that as we read these stories, if we remember that this is God's Word, then the areas that challenges us You know, the temptation is going to be for us to judge it and say, this isn't the way God ought to be. But if this is God's word, then it should correct us. It should judge us. And uh, that's how we we come to these things, to, to hear them. And if we never encounter anything in Scripture that doesn't challenge us, we're not really listening because it it has a place for challenging everyone. And, and that's how we grow in our understanding of God and grow in how understanding of how God would have us relate to him and to one another. So the, the issue that we're dealing with is, um, as they went into Jericho, this was one of those places where everything was to be devoted to destruction. The idea was none of the people were to take any of the um, wealth of the city, and part of what that was was saying, you're giving this to God. Um, in part, it was kind of a, a, a saying we, we recognize God has brought us in and given us victory, but also it was a way of saying the people were not coming into Canaan to profit. God was bringing them in to give them a land of promise, not to enrich them by looting and pillaging and, and hurting others. And, and so this was a command that they were to give everything over to God. All the wealth was to be uh, handed over, and so one person... Uh, keeps some of it for himself. There's a luxurious robe and some gold and silver he hides in a tent. And in some ways, a strange thing to do. How could he get away with this? What was he going to do with the gold? How would he give it to anyone? How, how could he use, wear the suit around, uh, the, the robe around to let everybody see that he had sinned? So in some ways, it was just pure covetousness and pure desire hiding it. The first area this challenges us on is our individualism. I always hated when the class didn't get to go to recess because one knucklehead wouldn't quit talking. Why should the whole class be punished uh, for the sins and rebellion of one student? 
Some of you teachers can answer that later after the service. But, but we're, we're, the whole idea of one person doing something wrong and the whole, um, um, the whole nation being held accountable is something we're not, we're not used to. We're used to just me and myself, and we, we, we think of who we are, and we don't think of ourselves in relation and connection and being part of uh, another group. All right, let me, let me throw you a curveball that I think want to kind of show how we might think of ourselves. I really like jazz music. I know no one else in the room probably likes jazz music. This is going to be part of my point. I've asked Clifton about jazz music. He says he's been to some concerts, and they missed about five times to end the song. So, <laughs> so I get it. Some people don't like jazz. But, so I was reading this history of jazz music, and it gets to it, and it says, why are we not having any great jazz musicians like Miles Davis and Duke Ellington and Charlie Parker? Why don't we have those anymore? You know, we're, we, we kind of feel like, you know, if we just get those, we'll, we'll, it'll enliven the genre again. And, and maybe there'd be two other people in the room who might know jazz. But, and, and they were saying, you're not going to have that. It's not because there's not talented and skilled musicians. You have skilled musicians who are probably more technical proficient than they were, but you have no culture. If you had someone who had the skill, it would be highly unlikely they would be in a community where they would be trained. And if they were in a community they would be trained, there would be so few people to play with where they could learn how to improvise and learn how to play in the genre. It's something you have to just play and learn. But there's not enough of that even going on. And even if there was a group that got together and played and went along, there wouldn't be anyone to want to listen to it. You don't hear it on maybe NPR occasionally. But, I mean, you're not going to listen and sales. There's just not an audience for it. And if there was an audience for it, it there wouldn't be a lot because there's not a lot of media that interviews people, and there's some of that, but I doubt anybody in here can name it because there's just not that many people who follow. That was the point. You never had just a single solitary genius. You didn't have just someone who was so amazing. What you had was you had a community and someone who talented would rise up, but they never made themselves. They were always part of a community of, many, of folks who would listen and who would study. In other words, we're not just who we are. It's not just having skills and abilities. It's being also part of a community and part of a group where that sort of thing can flourish. And, and this is, you know, our tendency to just think of if someone has the ability and has the skills and all this. And in other words, we identify just maybe our personality, just our um, job, just our, who we are and our preferences one of the things we're learning about in uh, the, the Sunday evening class on Strange New World is ancient cultures and, and more traditional cultures to this day don't think of themselves so much as an individual who's being formed by um, just their preferences and who they are, but they think of themselves as part of a community. This is what family I belong to. This is what community I belong to. This is, um, I mean... Uh, uh, example I used was still, you know, in rural areas, the question isn't what do you do, it's who do you belong to, who's your family, who's your kinfolk. And, and, and there's a sense in which we, we lose that. And we, we want people to flourish. We want people to recognize their individuality. But here's the thing. I would not be the person I am today if I had not come to Covington 12 years ago. I would not be the person I am today if I wasn't pastoring this church. You have changed me 
who I am is in large part my relationship with you. And who you are is in large part relationship to your family, to the jobs that have brought you here, the connections you have, your friends. They shape us and form us more than just, you know, me deciding who I'm going to be and go out on my own. You are, you know, it's kind of the part of what I tell in premarital counseling is, you know, you you don't just marry the individual. You you marry the family. And, you know, you – you, because you become part of a community. You become part of a, a, a larger family. And so this is one of the things that we see here is he's not just an individual. He is part of a community, and so his sin affects that community. He's part of a nation. And the narrative is wanting to drill this home. It's, it's hammering us in the head. Did you notice how many difficult names Hillary had to read? Because the whole point was, <laughs> Hillary noticed, how many... You know, it's this tribe, it's this clan, it's this household, the son of this person. He's wanting you to know this is who he is. And who he is isn't just Achan, but it's Achan who is part of the community. And what we need to see is you're not just who you are. You are who you are as part of a family, as part of a church, as part of a community, as part of a profession. You are who you are as part of the people around you. And the things that we do affect others. His sin affects those around him. Our sins affect those around us. If you are tempted to coveting and envy and desiring a life like someone else you see, it's going to generate bitterness with the people in your life. It's going to generate discontent, and it's going to be difficult to live if you're constantly looking and stirring up the sin of coveting and envy. If you're looking at videos on your computer at night that you don't need to be looking at, it's not just something that if no one discovers, it's not going to affect. It affects the way you look at women. It affects the way you look at others in your life. It will have an impact beyond yourself. If you are greedy and you're desiring things, it's it's not just something you can have in your heart and it's going to be covered up. It is going to impact the decisions you make that impact others in your life. Our sins, no matter how hidden, no matter how deep under the tent they are, will have a relationship, have a impact on our relationships with others. And then as, as a church, if, if there is some who is fostering a sin, there's a sense in which you lose authority to speak to that, that needs to be spoken to. You're going to be less likely to address issues that you need to address. You're, you're going to be more likely to kind of lead others astray to tell yourself that it's not so bad. And you're going to cut off from the ability to serve and flourish in the way God wants you to. We're saved by grace. We celebrate grace. We, we, we want to do that, but what we recognize is still God gives us grace of blessing through obedience. In other words, we might be free from the guilt of sin, but it doesn't necessarily free us from the consequences of those sins. And to be freed from sin doesn't mean, or guilt of sin doesn't mean that we're going to receive the fullness of the joy of the Lord 
and the joy of fellowship with others if we are fostering sin in our hearts because we're not just individuals. We are connected. We are a community. And your sin affects your brothers and sisters, whether they know about it or not, in ways you can't predict or imagine. And so there's a sense in which who we are, I don't know, sometimes people talk in a way that it's almost as though the church is something other than them. You are the church. Who we are is who you are. Who Israel was was who Achan was. Who, who they were was who this person is, and who you are affects everything, your, your freedom with your gifts, uh, your generosity with your gifts, your, your I mean, in, in serving and loving, the, the way you work with others, the way you um, relate to God empowers you to share with others and lead others that who you are is who we are as a congregation. We're not just a collection of individuals. We are a family for blessing as well as um, uh, weaknesses. The other area that challenges its own is sin. The, the first one I want us to see is, and I don't, I don't want to say this too strongly because it's not overtly stated, but do you remember all the details in Jericho of how they were to attack Jericho? And all the details of God telling Joshua, this is what you're going to do, and all the details uh, of, of God leading them to do all that. But when we get to this story, they are to go against I, there's no reference to God giving direction. There's no diff, you know, understanding of, of God saying, this is what you do. And in fact, it's just the spies go up and they say, ah, this is easy. We only need a two or 3,000. There's no seeking God's wisdom. There's no direction from God. And I think there's just almost this presumption. Well, Jericho is easy. God's with us. Um, whatever we do, God's going to be with us. To presume that God is with us no matter what, that we can live however and we can make our own decisions is to reject his wisdom, reject his blessing on us. God did, so I think there's in one part there's this idea that um, they presumed that God would be with him before he said he would, before they um, looked and they sought his wisdom. But more than that, the more the, the detail of the text itself is the sin of Achan, that he had coveted, he stole silver and gold and a robe. And I have to admit, I read this story, and my immediate response is, what a harsh God. What strict punishment for some cloth and metal? His life? All his possessions, all to be destroyed. And I realized, if I'm siding with Achan, I'm missing something. <laughs> I think it's a, an indictment on our view of sin that we don't see the rebellion that this is. It's how light we take sin. God had graciously freed them from Egypt. For 40 years in the wilderness, he, he gives them the food they need and protects them and, and leads them to, and, and he brings them miraculously through the river. He protects them as they go and attack Jericho. He gives them a victory all by grace, nothing they have done. And the one thing he says is, give me this, give me all that you take in there. And Achan decides, no, 
in spite of what God has done, I'm going to take this for myself. And, and to see that as a little thing says more about my rebellious heart. And if that's the way you're looking at this, it says more about our rebellious hearts than seeing the holiness of a God who has graciously given them all these things and called them to obedience, and they deny that obedience. And like Adam, they see that it was good, and they take it for themselves. And isn't that us, that we see something, and regardless of whether it is something God would have us do, we see it and decide that we will do for ourselves. It is not a view of the harshness of God. It is a view of the holiness and righteousness of God. And it's something that we really don't have much place for us in the modern world. Uh, A guy named Leonard Ravenhill, a, a pastor, said, I think one of the tragedies of modern Christianity is this that we're more afraid of holiness than we are of sinfulness. We're kind of okay with people pointing out our sins, but don't call me a legalist. We're okay with kind of recognizing I might have some vices, and we can kind of talk lightly about that. But I wouldn't want anybody to think I'm trying to be holy or too holy or self-righteous. There's a lot of churches that want to be relevant, almost to the point of downplaying sin. We don't talk about seeking righteousness. With, uh, it's almost as though we, we immediately conjure images of the church lady than the goodness of Jesus who loved and served others. We mock the idea of those who want to follow God's law. We sneer at the idea of God's law. I, I, I don't think, as a whole, we take God's holiness. But God is holy, and our sinfulness, if anything we are to see here, is what we, we hear in Romans. The wages of sin is death. Sin is serious. It cuts us off from one another. It cuts us off from God. It destroys us. And, and to, to pursue sin and to overlook sin is to watch people ruin their lives, is to watch people hurt others, is to watch people head towards eternal condemnation. Sin is grievous. It is weighty. It is something he shows us to cut yourself off from God is to cut yourself off from life and the source of life. Do we talk flippantly about sin? Do we we truly look in the prayer of confession and examine our hearts and and ask, are there ways I'm being prideful? Are there ways I'm not being generous? Are there ways that in my own life that I'm not being just and fair with others? Or do we just kind of overlook it and say, well, God forgives, that's his job. Let's enjoy grace. Sin brings death. The final thing in which this passage might challenge us us is confession and repentance is grace. 
I think there's a tendency for us to think of repenting as a difficult, you know, difficult, painful thing. And it is. It can be painful for us to admit that I'm wrong and I need to stop doing something. I'm wrong. I need to um, make up with someone I've hurt. I'm, I'm wrong and I need to confess that. But that is a wonderful grace. It is God's grace that he comes and says, I'm not with you until you get this out of your life. And I'm going to show you where it is in your life. And he brings the tribes and he shows them, this is what has to be purged if I'm going to be present with you. And there's a grace in our own life where God shows us the ugliness and the filth and the sin that we have to turn away from. And as painful as that can be to look and to admit my failures, how much worse would it be if I couldn't change (laughs) How much worse would it be for Robin if somebody couldn't point out a sin in my life and I can ache and learn and grow and stop doing it and move towards becoming more like Christ, become holier by turning away from my sin? How horrible would it be for you people? It would be, it would be very difficult if I had not grown in my time here as a pastor to learn and to repent and turn away from who I was in some areas. How much better it is for you to look in areas in your life and say, I was wrong about this. I need to repent. I need to change and turn. And to do so, to become more like Christ and to receive his forgiveness and to become more like Jesus to more loving and gracious and merciful and patient. Grace of repentance in our life, though painful, exposes those areas where we need to grow. And like this, that he purifies our own life so he can be present with us. Here is the, the possibility. Achan was one man, one man guilty, paid for his sin and rebellion. And he dies for the sake of the rest of the people. Now we can repent. Now we can receive forgiveness because there was one who came later. Because of one man who was innocent, who paid for our guilt and for our sin. One man who did not sin, but he takes on our sins. And because he dies, the other people are saved. And God is present with us because of his death. Do you feel the weight and the cost of sin? Do you recognize that you're part of a community where that community is joined with Christ who goes outside the camp to take the punishment for us so that we don't have to suffer like Achan, that we have eternal life and eternal communion in this nation, in this household of faith? Our sin is covered by the one who suffered for us. Let us... um, Stand and state what we believe through the words of the Apostles' Creed.